0: The joy of some of these Old Testament scriptures is that they throw all of the names of the ancient Old Testament peoples in there that they can. So many thanks to Tony for reading all of that, including the lists of many people and their uh, strange, at least to our ears, names. Friends, let us begin with prayer. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable unto you, our rock and our redeemer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Choose today whom you will serve, Joshua told the people. And they're back. They're back after hundreds and hundreds of years, with 40 years spent wandering the desert, several hundred enslaved in Egypt, and a few more on either end, as the Israelite story wound its way throughout the generations and across the landscape. But God's people have returned to a place they've been before. And believe it or not, one we've been to before with them. And that is the place of Shechem. See, we were there just a few weeks ago when God came to Abram, instructed Abram to leave his land and his family behind for a new land, one where his family would become a great nation, a people blessed by God to bless all the nations of the world. And so Abram goes, just as the Lord instructed him to, and he travels through the land, and he very quickly reaches the great oak of Morah, growing at Shechem. And it is there, at Shechem, that God suddenly appears again to Abram, and says to him, I give this land to your descendants. Abram builds an altar there, and then worships there before leaving, never again to return. The Israelites, in fact, do not return to Shechem until hundreds and hundreds of years later when Joshua leads the people back to the very place where Abram once stood. The oak tree is still there and the altar is still there, both echoes of a promise that their people can still hear whispered over the hills. This is their land. They have come to claim their birthright. But on the cusp of this great moment, as the people stand on the precipice of the promised land, now ready to receive them, as they stand ready to scatter across the landscape and take ownership of it, Joshua holds them steady. And he calls together the leadership, the elders of every tribe, to put this question before them. Choose today whom you will serve, he will tell them. But he doesn't tell them that just yet. First, He tells them a story. He tells them their story. But it is maybe not told as the people would choose to tell it for themselves because it is not a story of conquest culminating with the spoils of victory, nor is it a tale of great and mighty ancestors passing on perfect legacies for the generations to come. It is a story with victories, and there are ancestors too, but Joshua tells the story far more realistically than the people may have been comfortable with. Long ago, Joshua tells them, your people lived on the other side of the Euphrates and they served other gods. And then Joshua goes on to remember Abraham. Abraham, once called Abram, who was born and lived on that far side of the Euphrates River. Abraham, who once stood here by this tree and built this altar. Abraham, who was chosen by God to be the father of the nation through which God would bless the world. Abraham, who would forever be known as the great prophet and patriarch of the faith, that Abraham. But for all of Abraham's accolades, Joshua wants to make sure that the people and that we don't forget where he came from, just because we remember where he ended up. Father Abraham grew up on the far side of the Euphrates, and he worshiped other gods. The story continues, and we might like to think that the other gods were left there on the other side of the river. And as Abraham's story turned then to Isaac and then to Jacob and on down through the generations, it was clear that the God of the Israelites was with them. I brought your ancestors out of Egypt, God says. I rescued you from Balaam's power. I gave you victory over Jericho. I drove out the Amorite kings before you. It's a concise retelling of that militaristic narrative that runs throughout the book of Joshua. A string of battles that the Israelites participated in, all ending by completely erasing the opposing cities. This can be a challenging history for us to reckon with, though interestingly, it may lean towards hyperbole. Just a chapter later, as the book of Joshua ends and the book of Judges begins, these apparently conquered cities all reappear, with no evidence that they were ever completely eradicated in the first place. And so telling the story this way would have spoken in a language the people would have understood, a language familiar at the time intended to reveal a larger larger point while being a bit hyperbolic. So while it was historical hyperbole, it is theologically true. And it points to this one single major claim. It was God and God alone who gave complete and thorough victory to the Israelites. And after God's faithfulness, the Israelites throughout their entire history is abundantly clear. Joshua then doesn't hold back. And so he says, so now put aside the gods that your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates and in Egypt and serve the Lord. For while the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob had been faithful to the people across their whole history, those same people had nevertheless carried their former gods with them in body or in spirit to this point on the cusp of the promised land. It is a strange time to question the people's commitment and to assume that they are in danger of worshiping other gods. The Israelites have been carried By a faithful God to this point, they're just moments away from fully inhabiting the land that God promised to bless them with. Why would they turn away from God now? But Joshua knew that the smoothest paths can be the most treacherous terrain. It was when the Israelites were about to have more than they had ever had before that they were most at risk of rewriting their own history, altering the past to support the present. It might always be that when we have everything we could ever imagine having, that we are most in danger of rewriting our stories to justify having what we have. It's all too easy to believe that if we have something great, we must be something great, and we must come from something great. And then God gets written out of the story altogether. God is found in the honest history. The history that reckons with the things we'd rather leave out. The history that reckons with crusades and colonization that remembers schisms and slavery and schisms over slavery. Like when the Methodist church split in two because they couldn't agree whether pastors and bishops should be allowed to own other human beings. That history, that honest history, that remembers the fallibility of our heroes, the faults of our founding fathers, the failures found in even the greatest theologians and pastors and leaders of the faith. The history that looks at everything we have and realizes that no matter how hard we worked along the way, we are the privileged and lucky recipients of land we did not work and cities we did not build. It's not easy to tell our story this way. Recognizing that we are not the architects of our own successes and that even the greatest before us have left their faults in our inheritance leaves us face to face with our own imperfections and limitations. And that's not an easy story to own. But it's worth it. Because then the story can become one of salvation by grace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once wrote that the gospel is frankly hard for the pious to understand because the gospel confronts us with the truth saying, you are a sinner, a great and desperate sinner. Now come as the sinner you are to the God who loves you madly. An honest history might be what the people needed, might be what we always need, to confront us with that need to come home to the God who loves us. And when that is clear before the people, Joshua lays out the question. Choose today whom you shall serve, he says. And though our passage ended here this morning, it's interesting to know what happened next. The people say yes. It doesn't even seem like it was a very difficult choice for them. God forbid that we would ever leave the Lord to serve other gods, they say. We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. And it seems like absolutely the right and perfect answer because of course they would choose to serve God. Now Joshua is at this point 110 years old. He's just a few paragraphs from dying and being buried in the ground. And when he hears this response from the Israelites, he responds with all of the strength he has left in his aging frame. Joshua looks at this people that he has led for the course of his entire adult life. He hears their allegiance and their declaration that they will serve God. And then he says to them with passion and with force, you can't serve the Lord. He says to them, you can't serve the Lord because he is a holy God. And then he worries out loud that the Israelite people will mock God's commitment to them by returning to their former ways. And it almost sounds like after all these years of leadership, Joshua is burned out responding with cynicism. But he might be right to resist the people's easy response. Joshua knows that committing to God is not an easy thing to do. It cannot be a casual surface level play, pledge for us to make. God insists on lifelong commitment that touches every dimension of our lives, individually and together. Joshua's invitation here in the book of Joshua stands in the larger tradition Of Scripture to this point. It stands on the tradition of the commandments given at the mountain of Sinai, and in the tradition of the entire book of Deuteronomy, which precedes this, the entirety of the law given by God to the people, which seem to all center around that one most basic theme that we are to love God and to love one another. In all of these instructions given to the Israelites and captured in Scripture for all God's people, there is no realm of life left untouched by this command. A commitment to God touches every dimension of our private and public lives, has something to say about how we shape our community's social, political, and economic structures, because we are called to love God and to love one another. The other gods offered to us do not demand such dramatic fealty. They promised quick returns on small investments, those returns being financial prosperity or success or security or power or control or any number of things. They promised not to interfere with what we declare to be our primary loyalty, that surely we can serve God while holding on to these idols, looking to do other things. And yet, even their minor requests of us prevent us from full commitment to God. Jesus once said, you cannot serve both God and money. Joshua needed to be sure his people knew that choosing God meant radically committing themselves to creating a world where God was honored in the way that they cared for each other. It meant leaving behind the idols that promised wealth and well-being and instead attending to the individual needs of their neighbors. It meant welcoming the stranger and the immigrant. It meant caring for the sick who might not have health insurance. It meant working with the ones trapped in cycles of poverty. It meant embracing and empowering the lonely and the alone. It meant cherishing the ones sidelined and ostracized by society for whatever fickle reason we've landed on today. It meant that while God was giving them land to live in, it was not to benefit themselves, but to bless the world around them. I will make of you a great nation, God said to Abram at Shechem so many years before, and I will bless you so you may bless all the nations of the world. Joshua made sure they remembered this, that this was a land they hadn't tilled, these were cities they hadn't built. They were blessings from God given so that the people might be a blessing to the world. And so, this is the choice that the Israelites have before them, and it's not an easy one. Joshua has them commit to it three times over before he lets them go and he goes off and dies. Joshua has them commit to it three times as if to prove that they can continue making the same choice over and over again in the days to come because that's the sort of choice that this is. One that has to be made together and repeatedly. Today and tomorrow and all of our days together. And as the people of God learn, it's a challenging choice. Not because they have to choose God, but because they have to let go of everything else to do it. There's a prayer from the priest and the author, Henry Nowen, that speaks marvelously to this. He writes the prayer, and it goes like this. Dear God, I am so afraid to open my clenched fists. Who will I be when I have nothing left to hold on to? Who will I be when I stand before you with empty hands? Please help me to gradually open my hands and to discover that I am not what I own, but what you want to give me. And what you want to give me is love, unconditional, everlasting love. Amen. May this be the prayer that we hold in our hearts this day and every day. May we be a people of unclenched hands, freed to be filled with love an unconditional and everlasting love that fills us and overflows out of us in our love of neighbor. Amen. Friends, I invite you to stand as you are able so we might sing together in worship uh, our next hymn, which is, In Christ There Is No East or West, number 548 in the hymnal.